Well, it's a good time to talk about someone when they're not here. So um, the Howards are in, uh, in Virginia uh, this week, uh, just visiting friends and everything. Um, and they've been uh, here in Michigan for, I don't know, seven or eight months now. And uh, just I'm immensely thankful for them. I know so many of you are as well. Um, they have jumped right in and been a blessing to us. Um, Marcel, in particular, has just been uh, so encouraging um, to me, and I think the other elders as well. I know to children's ministry, uh, he has been uh, dynamite in there, uh, getting the schedule set. Uh, just uh, he's so personable and uh, just likable to be around. Um, he is able to assemble a, a team and, and just encourage them and challenge them and uh, keep them motivated. So. Uh, anyway, um, he's not here, so I thought, man, this is a great time to talk about him. Um, so just uh, wanted to express my appreciation and, uh, and hope you feel the same way um, about the Howards and, uh, and the job that Marcel is doing here uh, as well. Um, and while we're at it, I'm just thankful for, uh, for Audra's participation consistently in the music ministry, uh, just week in and week out. She, she is here, but I'll still talk about her in front of her. So um, while we're acknowledging people, um, you know, just thankful for the time and effort and investment that she uh, pursues in the, the music ministry. Um, so uh, we have a lot to be thankful for. We really do. Uh, so many of you serve faithfully and consistently and uh, make everything run here uh, and uh, do the work of the ministry, which is what we're here to do, uh, both in the church and then outside the church in the world, spread the gospel. So uh, just a good time to be thankful for that this morning. Um, I want you, as we're, as we're getting going this morning, to uh, imagine with me for a moment that you're sitting in the mall. I know no one goes to the mall anymore. Um, if this were accurate, you would be sitting at your computer buying off of Amazon. But just imagine, if you know what a mall is, that you're sitting in the mall and you're sitting on a bench. Maybe you're waiting for a spouse to come out of a store, and you're sitting there, and this man walks up and sits next to you on the bench, and he looks over at you, and the first words out of his mouth are, the lionfish is an invasive species from the Indian Ocean that has moved into the Atlantic Ocean and is wrecking the ecosystem. Now, of course, at this point, you're, you're thinking probably a number of things. But if nothing else, you're thinking, what in the world does he mean by this? Why is this person saying these words to me at this time? Why is he telling me this? And there are a number of options. Your first thought, probably you're all thinking, well, this person's crazy. They've lost their mind. But there actually are other options that could be true of why this person is telling you this. One option could be this individual may have mistaken you for a friend that he was just talking to, and they were talking about marine life, and he sat down and tried to continue the conversation with his friend, but you obviously are not his friend. Another option could be that this individual has been to counseling for social anxiety, <laughs> and his counselor said to him, listen, you need to go and engage in strangers, engage them in conversation, to overcome your social anxiety. And he says, well, what should I talk about? And the counselor says, whatever comes to mind. And you are the recipient of that. Another option could be that this is a Russian spy. <laughs> and this, this is his code word to make contact with the person that he's supposed to meet up with, 
with another agent. So how do you make sense of what's going on here? How do you interpret the sentence that this person has said to you on the bench there? Well, obviously, you have to have some context. You have to know a little bit about this person. And beyond context, you really need to understand the story in which this phrase comes to you. You can't just interpret this phrase as it comes to you. You can know something about what he's saying, but you really can't understand the meaning of the sentence without the story that has brought him to this point of speaking that story to you. You need context. You need a story. And beyond understanding the meaning of the sentence, when you understand its meaning, now you're able to respond appropriately. What do you do when this person speaks to you? Well, there, there are a number of different options, and it depends on the meaning and the story in which that sentence comes to you. Do you call security? <laughs> that may be your first response, but that may not be the appropriate response. If this person, person does have social anxiety, maybe you need to sit there and engage with them, and it would be an act of kindness to respond and begin talking to this individual. Maybe if it is someone who is thinking they're talking to a friend, you laugh it off, and then maybe you meet the person and begin engaging in normal conversation, <laughs> not about lionfish in the, the Atlantic Ocean, although that is a great topic for discussion, I think. But the point is that you have to know the story that led you to that point, and that story will help you to understand the meaning of the sentence, and it will help you to understand how you respond and what action you need to take. Now, obviously, I didn't come this morning to talk about lionfish and marine life. I came this morning to, to set this as a ground rule for really all of life. And I want to set this as a ground rule in particular for us this morning as understanding the death of Jesus Christ. You have to know the story, the broader biblical story in which the death of Jesus comes to us, or you can't really understand its meaning fully, and you can't understand how to respond appropriately as the story would have us. I think what we tend to do is we tend to isolate the death of Jesus from the rest of the biblical story. We tend to think of the death of Jesus in very narrow terms, and we don't think about his death in light of the grander purpose of God for all of creation. How does this story in the Gospels of the death of Jesus fit into what God is planning to do and what he intends to do for all of creation? We ask this question, why did Jesus die? As you'll see it on the screen here. We, this, is a, this is a question we typically ask, and we many times will answer it this way. Well, he died to forgive our sins and to give us eternal life. And that probably sounds really great to everyone here. And that's true, but it's an incomplete answer. There's nothing wrong with that statement, but it doesn't take into account the whole biblical story. And when you answer that way, he died to forgive my sins and to give me a home in heaven for all of eternity, it can end up becoming self-centered. And then I think of the death of Christ and God's purposes in Christ as really terminating with me and my salvation, rather than my salvation is part of a much bigger story of what God intends to do in the world, what his goals are. So this morning, over the last few weeks, we've just studied the death of Christ in the Gospel of Mark. And so this morning, I want to do a topical message and a study 
And I want to try to address this question of why did Jesus die, and I want to fit it into the broader framework of Scripture as best we can. Now, this is a formidable task to try to fit the death of Christ into the broader story of Scripture, but I want to try to do this as best we can in a summary fashion to help you make sense of why Jesus died and to give you a richer and a fuller understanding of what his death accomplished. And I think when you know the meaning of his death in a richer and fuller way, connected to the story in which it comes, then I think it will help you to worship better, and it'll help you to respond more appropriately with your life. So that's the goal this morning. So let's go back to the, the, the guy on the bench for a second in the mall. If someone spoke that to you, and you did not know what it meant, and they spoke that sentence, and then they sat there and looked at you, to understand the meaning of the sentence, you would have to follow up by asking questions. You would have to try to start unfolding the story in which he has come to you by asking questions and by engaging in conversation. And so that's what I want to do this morning. I want to ask two questions to clarify the purpose of Christ's death so that we can respond faithfully. Two questions to clarify the purpose of Christ's death so that we can respond faithfully and appropriately. The first one of these is, what was God's goal in creation? That's a big question. Now, clearly, I think everyone here understands the death of Jesus is the climax of the biblical story. But you can't make sense of the climax of a story unless you know the beginning of the story and you know what the story is all about. You can't just rip his death out of the context of the story and understand it. Well, the Bible begins its story, the story of God's creation and everything in it, by proclaiming that God is the creator. Turn in your Bibles to the very first verse, Genesis chapter 1, and verse 1. We're going to spend a few minutes here in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Which, incidentally, just let me tell you this, after Easter, which is when we're going to do Mark 16, the resurrection story in the Gospel of Mark, um, we're, going to, we're going to study Genesis 1 through 3 in a little more detail. So the next sermon series will be through Genesis chapters 1 through 3, so just by way of info there. Um, but the Bible begins this story of God's creation in Genesis 1-1, and it's stated so simply here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So it sort of comes to us stated simply, and we have to ask this question, what was his goal? What did he hope to accomplish in creating this? And that answer will give us the context in which to understand the work of Christ. So before we look through Genesis 1 to 3, I'm going to give you, I'm going to state God's purpose in creation, and then we're going to go and unfold that in Genesis 1 through 3, okay? So here is the, way, the best way that I understand it, stated as clearly as possible. Someone help me with this. You'll see his name here. But here's how I understand God's purposes for creation. God's, it is God's reign through his servant kings, through his people, over creation for his glory. So it's God's reign, it's his rule over or through his servant kings over creation for his glory. It's his power seen through his people in a particular place. That's an essential understanding of what his, his kingdom is. So you can see at the end of this that it's for his glory. Sometimes people will state God's purposes for everything as just for his glory, and that is true, but I don't think it's specific enough to give us 
an understanding of the story of Scripture and how to fit Christ's death into it. But it is all for his glory. He deserves honor, praise, and worship because of his character and because of his works. Now, what are his works that display his character? I think we're going to see that here as we talk about his goal in creation. What was he pursuing by creating the world? Well, in Genesis 1, I know you're very familiar, most of you are very familiar with the creation account in Genesis 1. But the creation account happens by God speaking everything into existence. It's kind of amazing as you start reading through this. I know we're so familiar with it, but God speaks and it happens instantaneously. And one of the things we learn from this is that he is the absolute Lord of all of creation. He is the creator and everything else has been created by him. And there's no more important distinction to make than the creator-created distinction. That is probably the most important thing to know about us as human beings, and certainly to know about the world. He's the creator, everything else is created, and because of that, everything belongs to him. So over the course of these six days, as you read through it, and we won't do that this morning, God speaks, it comes to pass. There's no challenge to his authority. He is the king. He reigns over all, and everything that he has created is good, and it's to his glory. But as you're reading through this account of creation, it it has this rhythm to it. He speaks, it comes to pass, evening and morning were the, the, morning and evening were the, whatever day it was, first day, second day, third day, and it has this rhythm and this pace to it that you get accustomed to, and then as you're reading through Genesis chapter 1, you get to the sixth day, and the biblical writer slows everything down and zeroes in on the creation of human beings. And he says something about human beings that he does not say about anything else in creation. Look at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Human beings are made in God's image. That is a very significant piece of information that we need to understand. And when we think about being made in God's image, maybe you've been taught that what that means is that human beings possess certain innate qualities. So being made in God's image, most people are taught means that we're rational, we're logical. That, that makes us distinct from animals, and so that's what it means to be made in God's image. Well, we are rational, we are logical, and we are distinct from animals. But I think that understanding of being made in God's image is forcing too much on what is stated here, and it's not really understanding the significance of being made in God's image as Moses understands it and explains it in Genesis chapter 1. At the most basic level, being made in God's image means that we are covenantally related to God. Our lives exist and should exist in relationship to Him as beings who reflect Him. An image is a reflection of something else. And so we're made in God's image to reflect Him and to be in relationship to Him and worship Him. At its most basic level, that's what it means to be made in God's image. So how do we do that? How has God intended for human beings to image him, to reflect him? 
and to exist in the world and worship Him? Well, He actually tells us here what it means for human beings to be made in His image and how we act that out in the world. To properly image Him is explained in verses 26 through 28. Let's just read the rest of it here. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. Verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I told you at the beginning that God creates everything by the word of his mouth, and he is the king reigning over all of creation. And being made in his image here means we reflect him by taking dominion over all of creation. That's how we image God. That's how we reflect him. So men and women together in this passage image God by fulfilling the task he has given them, which is to rule over creation and to cultivate creation as God's servant kings. So what Adam and Eve were to do is they were to work with the elements of creation and to build culture and to create systems of human flourishing, and to take on tasks and jobs that brought order out of chaos, and to develop life on this earth in a way that showed that they had dominion over the creation as God's representatives. That was the goal here. They're to reign over the world as God's vice regents, right? As his governors in his stead. They were to represent his rule on the earth. So that rule, that reign, would begin locally in a garden that God placed them in. There was a starting point, almost like a beachhead, that they were to begin in, and then they were to multiply and fill the earth with image bearers, and those image bearers were to spread out over all the earth and cultivate it and take dominion over it and to represent God as they cultivate creation and rule over it. They were to reflect him and worship him as they dwelt in relationship with him. Look down at Genesis 2 and verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. He was to begin in the garden and then ultimately to spread out over the whole world. The goal of that dominion was that that mankind would cultivate the earth like a farmer cultivates and plows a field and that the earth would be a suitable dwelling place for God and man to dwell together in relationship as man rules over the earth and God ultimately rules over man and dwells with man. So that's the purpose of God in creation. That's what Genesis tells us here. The problem is, is that those plans hit a dramatic snag in Genesis chapter 3. The wheels come off in many ways in Genesis chapter 3. What happens here? I, think, I take it you're familiar with the story in Genesis 3, so we won't read through it. But if God has given Adam and Eve the, the goal to take dominion over creation, to rule over the animals, to cultivate the earth, then what happens in Genesis 3? That order is turned on its head. Rather than ruling over the animals, what do Adam and Eve do? They let 
a serpent into the garden, and they let the serpent take dominion over them. The order is reversed. Things aren't as they should be. Adam and Eve submit to the lies of the serpent, and they reject God's authority and God's good words and goals for them. And as a result, the command of God, the purpose of God in creation has become much more difficult now. Look down at Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. God lays down a series of curses here because of man's rejection of his authority. And now when mankind tries to take dominion over the earth and cultivate the earth, now it's much more difficult. The earth's going to fight back. And maybe you've experienced this in your work, in your yard this week, or your job, or wherever it may be. Look at verse 17. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." Now, these these judgments make things look pretty bleak for Adam, right? It's going to be really hard to even get food from the ground, and then you're going to die. (laughs) Not looking good. And that gets to the heart of the mission that God gave them, right? To rule over creation, but creation's going to fight back. It's going to be cursed on your account now. The task I've given you is going to be very, very difficult. And the purpose of God is not eradicated by this, but it's made much more difficult. But in these curses, God gives Adam and Eve hope that the mission will still be accomplished. The purpose that he has for creation will still come to pass. The work of the serpent will be undone, but it will only be undone by one individual who will come through the woman. Look at verse 15. Speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring or your seed and her offspring... He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Two important points to notice about this promise. This seed will have victory. He will win a victory, but that victory will come through his suffering. He'll crush the head of the serpent. He'll win a victory over the serpent, but that victory will come through his suffering. So all of this sets the trajectory now, but at this point, God cannot allow sinful people to dwell in his presence in the garden, and so they're exiled from the garden. And they're exiled with the command to multiply and to fill the earth with image bearers. But things do not go very well. One chapter later, in chapter 4, immediately, and we read in Scripture, after, after leaving the garden, Adam and Eve's one son murders their other son. And this is not how God intended. And things sort of spiral down from here over the next couple of chapters. And you get to chapter 6, and nearly all human beings are living in a sinful way before the Lord. And God wipes them out through the flood, and he restarts this project again through Noah. If you were to go, which we won't do it now, but if you were to go to Genesis chapter 9... And after Noah comes out of the ark, God gives him the same commands that he gave to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1. 
the plan, the mission, the goal is still in place. But of course, we read right after that, that Noah falls into sin almost immediately as well. The purpose of God is still intact, but no one is able to bring about that purpose, at least not anyone that we've read so far. And so to massively summarize the Old Testament, because we don't have a ton of time to go through this this morning, here's what we basically find in light of this plan of God for his creation that he's made, for his servant kings to reign over creation for his glory. Here's what we find in the Old Testament. The mission is still there. The purpose is still there. And that purpose gets passed down from individual to individual. So you go from Adam to Noah to Abraham to the patriarchs to the nation of Israel to David to Solomon. And I'm sure there are others in there that I'm missing. But the point is this responsibility gets passed down. And it gets passed down from individual or to nation, to nation, to to person to person. And what we find in the Old Testament is each of these individuals fails. They're unable to fulfill this purpose and this plan of God. But as this pattern is happening over and over again, the biblical story unfolds and gives us more specificity regarding this seed who will come. There's some hope with Noah that Noah would be the one. His father spoke of him, maybe he will give us rest from the curse that has been laid down. And so that pattern develops over and over again, but with each person failing and not bringing this to pass, then we get more specificity. We find out that the seed's going to come through Abraham's line. And then we find out with Israel that God's going to restart, and he's going to place the nation of Israel in a land that is described like the Garden of Eden. It's a place flowing with milk and honey, and it's good. And that's going to be the starting point for them to dwell in God's presence as Adam and Eve did and to begin to rule over creation and to spread out over the earth the knowledge and the glory of God. But of course, they fell as, fell, fail to do that as well. We find out that the seed's going to come through the line of Judah and that he's going to be a king We find out he's going to be in the line of David, and we find out he's going to suffer on behalf of his people in Isaiah. So what was the goal of God in creation? That's our big question here. We find that out in the early chapters of Genesis, and that progresses through the Old Testament, and then we reach the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Everything has been leading from these early chapters of Genesis through the fall, through these patterns of people receiving these promises and receiving this mission and failing, and that leads us up to the story of Jesus in the New Testament. And that brings us to our second question. So what was God's goal in creation is the first question, and then how did Jesus bring about that goal? Because as I've been talking, you're probably thinking, that doesn't sound anything like what Jesus did. And that's because we think about Christ's work in isolation from the bigger story of Scripture. We don't try to fit these two things together. And so I would answer this question, how did Jesus bring about this goal? Um, This author I quoted earlier, Jeremy Treat, he helped me with this. There are two ways, a vertical way that Jesus accomplishes this goal in a horizontal way, right? So you can see the little diagram there, and I'll, I'll fill this out. What do I mean by vertically? How does Jesus vertically accomplish God's goal? Well, 
we typically, this is how we normally think of what Christ's death accomplishes. We think of it in terms of a vertical reconciliation between God and man. And obviously that is right. And that's good. And that's a major piece of this. We think in terms of the relationship in the garden was severed between God and man. And Jesus, as the perfect God-man, brings the two warring parties back together. And that's true. And he does that by forgiveness of sins. Romans 5.1. We think of it this way. Reconciliation between God and man. That's the vertical piece of it. Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But this morning, what I want to say to you is if you isolate the vertical from the horizontal piece of Christ's work, the the horizontal accomplishment of his work, then you're missing how Jesus completes the story of Scripture. And you're sort of pulling it out of, of the pages of Scripture. And you're pulling his death away from God's intended purposes for the world. So what do I mean by the horizontal impact of Christ's death? Well, if you think about the story of Scripture as a a story progressing along a line, as stories do, then Jesus is the climax of that story. He's the completion of that story. He's the high point of that story. It's through him that the story of Scripture is brought to completion. So where do we see this? Well, what does Jesus come onto the scene proclaiming in the Gospels? the kingdom of God. The dominion of God over creation, that's what he comes onto the scene proclaiming. Now, I was taught, maybe some of you were taught the Romans road as a way to explain salvation. And it is a good method to explain salvation. You, you string together verses from Romans, you know, Romans chapter 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. Romans 5, but God demonstrated his love toward us while we're still sinners. Christ died for us. And then Romans 10, you know, 3, 6, 5, 10. It kind of goes that way, right? You double each, the first one. And so then you get to Romans 10, and it's, you know, faith is the means by which we receive that gift. And that's a good way to explain what salvation is and what the, the death of Christ accomplishes But I would say to you that only deals with the vertical. It doesn't deal with the horizontal. When you explain the gospel that way, and that's all that you do to explain the gospel, then you're missing, you can't make sense of why Jesus would explain or teach the kingdom of God. Why does Jesus come into the world and teach and enact the kingdom? Why does that dominate the gospels? I think you can begin to make sense of that when you go back to God's purpose in creation as ruling over the world, having dominion over the world through his servant kings for his glory, then you can start to understand what Jesus is proclaiming and showing in the Gospels. What he's proclaiming is that he is bringing about God's original design for creation, for a human being to reign over the world as God's vice-regent for God's glory. That's what he's proclaiming. That's what he's telling us his, his coming and his work bring about. So we're so used to thinking about the death of Christ in terms of my relationship with God that we sometimes fail to think about how Christ's death fits into God's plan for all of creation. 
it tends to be me-centered rather than, okay, the scope of creation. What is Christ's work doing there? And so I would say to you this morning, let's fit together the vertical and the horizontal there. Let's bring these two together, and here's how we would do this. It's by means of the atoning death of Jesus for sin that he brings about God's reign through his servant kings for his glory. The vertical reconciliation is the means by which the story of Scripture is brought to completion. And so the vertical and the horizontal go together. Jesus accomplishes the victory. Remember Genesis chapter 3? The victory over sin and death and the devil by his atoning suffering on the cross. And therefore, he is exalted to reign as a human king over all. Let me show you real quick a passage where the vertical and the horizontal are brought together. Colossians 2, we'll start in verse 15 and then we'll go back. He, Christ, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, the devil, his minions, all of that, by triumphing over them in him. He triumphed over them. How did he do this? He wins a victory over the power of darkness. How? Verses 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. He wins the victory by his atoning suffering and death for our forgiveness of sins. Now, this is an extremely brief and summarized explanation of this. Maybe your head is spinning right now. But I want to draw out a couple of significant application points from this that that you can talk through in your small groups, from this picture of the vertical and the horizontal coming together in the work of Christ and how Christ fulfills God's plans to reign through his vice regents over creation for his glory. This will help us to respond appropriately to the work of Christ. So a couple things here, actually three. When you understand that the death of Jesus is not just a reconciliation between God and men, although it is that, obviously. I never want to take that away. But when you understand that it's not just the vertical reconciliation between God and man, but the death of Jesus is the means by which God accomplishes his original design for creation. When you begin to see Jesus as turning the the hinge on the story that God is unfolding and the purposes of God through creation, when you begin to see that, I think it helps you to anticipate the future. It gives us hope. Because now we're not just thinking vertically, God and man. Now we're thinking horizontally that we are headed somewhere, that we're going somewhere as a part of this story that God is unfolding. So what is that hope? What do we anticipate? I think it's a genuine hope that God will accomplish his purpose of human beings serving him by ruling over creation for his glory. And they'll do that by by being completely free from sin. Our future is not to float on the clouds and play harps 
and sing and be bored forever. But I want you to notice what the multitudes are praising Jesus for in Revelation 5. Look at this. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language of people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. I mean, you can see it right here. Christ accomplishes the work of forgiveness for sins by his suffering on the cross, and the end to which that work points is that human beings will reign with him over creation, being free from sin. These believers are anticipating that and looking forward to that and hoping in that. And so through this understanding of the death of Christ, God's purposes come full circle. What he originally designed and intended will come to pass. And anticipating that and hoping in that is something we can rejoice in. The second thing that I think this type of thinking does for us is this is a very personal, that's kind of a big picture hope, but this is a personal hope. And this is a hope that I, as a human being, will one day be free from sin and I will be able to live as God originally intended human beings to live. See, we don't even know by experience what that could possibly be like right now. We've never tasted that. We don't even have a hint of what that would be like. And I'll be honest with you, life is frustrating <laughs> lots of the time. Things don't work very well. My house has issues. The ground is cursed, and my house is apparently a part of that. Things break, and I try to fix them, and I make them worse by trying to fix them. I'm only in my mid to late 30s. Is 37 mid, or is it late 30s? I'll take mid 30s. <laughs> but my body hurts, and I know that means nothing to some of you. <laughs> the things don't work like they used to, right? Yeah, I know. I know. It's crazy. It shouldn't be happening this quickly, right? <laughs> it's evidence that things are not as they should be. Human life is not unfolding as God originally intended it to in the garden. And beyond those physical difficulties, man, I, I want so badly to be a person of integrity and joy and peace and faithfulness. And I'm so consistently not. I'm grumpy and I'm anxious and I lack integrity. And I, I just, it's so hard to live that way. But the fact that Jesus died, not just to reconcile us to God and forgive our sins, but by means of that, in order to set things right, and to restore the original purpose of creation where human beings would populate the earth, be free from sin, dwell in the presence of God, and reign over creation as God originally intended. The, the, the fact that Christ's death accomplishes that gives me personal hope that one day I will be as God intended me to be. I will become the human being that he intends me to be. Now, here's the beautiful thing about that. In some ways, 
that's not just a future thing. Did you know, and this is the third point of application, that we can begin to appropriate the realities of the new creation that Christ has purchased by his death, we can begin to appropriate those realities right now. That is called sanctification. It's the process by which we are restored to being what human beings should be. Now, unfortunately, this doesn't work on your physical body all the time. But your spirit and your character and your joy and your peace can begin to reflect what it looks like to be a true human being because you begin to reflect Jesus Christ, who was the perfect, free from sin, ultimate human being. Let me show you this. Colossians chapter 3. I want you to notice as I read this that there is a decisive change that Paul says should happen in your life. There are old ways and there are new ways. There are ways that are consistent with the old creation, with sin, and there are ways that are consistent with the new creation. And Paul says because of what Jesus has done, because you are united to him, because he is our head, put off the old ways and put on the new ways. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now, now that Christ has come, now that he's been raised into heaven and you are raised with him, that's what the first part of this chapter says, but now... You must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. And then look at this. Which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. This is what God intended in Genesis 1, that we would properly image him, that we would properly reflect him, that we would be full and accurate depictions of who he is by the way we relate to one another and the world around us. And the beauty of this passage is you and I can begin to live that out right now. Not perfectly, but truly And we can make progress in this throughout our lives. And then when Jesus returns or at the moment of death, this process will be completed. And we'll stand in his presence free from sin and as we were originally intended to be. So why did Jesus die? He died to make things right and to accomplish God's purpose for creation by the redemption of his people to the praise, honor, and glory of his name. Let's pray. Father, these are, these are huge ideas and concepts. We've covered a massive amount of ground this morning, and I pray that you would, you would just help us to, to soak in these realities for a bit, that you are working out your purposes through Jesus Christ in us now. I pray that we would see how we fit into this big story that you are telling. And I pray that we would respond appropriately. Now we've seen the death of Christ 
in both the vertical and horizontal implications of it. We know better how your death, Lord Jesus, fits into the story. And so I pray that we would respond appropriately to that. I pray that this would shape us and form us into those who properly reflect your image. Thank you for your grace in doing this. We are undeserving, we are unworthy, and yet you have loved us and have given us your son. Thank you, Father. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.